Welcome to Affect Autism. This week, I thought we would continue on from the last podcast I had with Dr. Stuart Shanker because it was so interesting and he kind of left us with a tidbit about um, self-reg and parents and especially when we're thinking about helping our children with their own self-regulation. So this is affectautism.com. Welcome. This week we have with us Eunice Lee, who is a social worker in Toronto. She is also a DIR expert training leader, that is DIR floor time in the world of autism and other developmental challenges. Welcome, Eunice. Hi, Zari. It's nice to be here. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me and to shed light for our listeners a little bit more about the self-reg process. So... um, For those of you that tuned in, I did a podcast with Dr. Stuart Shanker about self-reg and DIR. And DIR, of course, is the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model. Um, And there was a big DIR floor time controlled randomized study done at York University in Toronto um, from, I believe, 2005 to 2012 is what he said. And Dr. Shanker had shared with us in this podcast that they had some trouble at the beginning of that study, and one of the researchers had suggested they hire a mental health professional to work with the parents. And that mental health professional was social worker Eunice, who's with us today. And I wondered, Eunice, if you could share with us a little bit about how you came on to that project with Dr. Shanker and what you were asked to do. Sure, I'm happy, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, uh, so there were altogether six of us as um, on the clinical treatment team. Um, there were uh, three, three speech language pathologists, two occupational therapists, and myself. And um, just based on the way the randomized controlled trial was um, uh, organized, uh, there were three therapists that were hired for the immediate treatment group that started in 2006. And I was one of the uh, three therapists that were hired for the delayed treatment group in 2007. Um, So um, I did bring um, a bit of a different um, perspective um, to the work, but I worked very closely with my colleagues um, in really understanding the child's developmental level, um, being able to develop um, appropriate goals, and then deliver the treatment as a team. And had you known anything about DIR floor time prior to coming on to the study? Uh, That's a great question. I was quite fortunate. I actually found or became interested in Dr. Greenspan and Dr. Weider's um, engaging autism and DIR model um, a few years earlier uh, while I was working for a different social service agency. And I had an opportunity to begin my DIR training uh, prior to coming on to the study at York. Okay, so you came on, and according to Dr. Shanker, he said that their study finally really started clicking once you sat down with the parents and said, what's going on with you? It's stressful having a child with autism. Tell me about the stress you're going through. And he said that this really um, helped the parents finally uh, get what DIR was all about. I mean, I think I think my colleagues had done a lot of the uh, had done a lot of the groundwork um, prior to my starting. Right, they were focused on um, what the expertise that they were bringing on to the study. Um, obviously, with my mental health background, um, I was particularly interested um, in the parents in um, really being able to deliver this as a coaching model, which was our intention as part of the study. So um, I think those, uh, those questions or those things that Dr. Shanker talked about were definitely in my mind. Um, how those were presented, how they were um, dealt with individually for every, um, every child and family might have been a little bit different, but I was certainly thinking of those things that Dr. Shanker mentioned in terms of the parents' self-regulation, their stress, and, and sort of how we had to tailor the approach to not only meet the needs of their child, but also the needs of the parents. Yeah, and you know, um, I've been doing this blog now for three years, and one of the early blogs that I wrote about, which was pretty much following along in the chapters with engaging autism, was uh, family 
uh, floor time as a family approach. And it really does talk about the family interactions and how um, the whole dynamics of the family play into the whole approach. It's not just about the child. And I had mentioned in that blog that that was an aspect I'd like to focus on going forward. And fast forward almost three years, haven't really talked that much about it. And when Dr. Shanker brought that up, it, ha it was like a light bulb going off in my head. Like, yes, this is what I haven't yet really focused on in the podcast. It's, it's, and in the blog, it's been all about how can we support and guide our children using floor time and how can we apply you know, the different, uh, all the knowledge we know about their developmental level, about their individual differences and their sensory systems and building this relationship with them. But really, when we're forgetting about our own self-regulation as parents and that effect that we have on the child and, and that affects the relationship and everything, it's such an important piece. And so I just wanted to have you on to delve into this a little bit more because it sounds very easy to say, oh, let's start with the regulation of the parents first. But that is, um, that, that's a real process. How can the parents apply self-regulation to themselves? Because it is so important. Right, absolutely. I mean, I think starting with the child makes so much sense. And it's very logical because um, oftentimes or, or most times it's the child that presents with um, uh, development that might be delayed or um, sort of um, parents are noticing things. So that's oftentimes, um, if not all the time, the first thing that is sort of um, uh, flagged, right? So, but when we start to work and because, and this is one of the many reasons that I, I like using DIR and sort of I, found, I find it very, um, uh, it, it, it can meet the needs of very, very different families is because it is catered to sort of the therapist or the clinician really understanding what the, what the, what the parent brings into it and sort of their strengths and what, and I like to, when I'm working with families, I like to talk about sort of what's already working and how to build on that as opposed to starting from scratch or doing it a, a different way. So in general, a strengths-based model, just like we talk about with the children. Yes, absolutely. It's just, it's kind of like a parallel process is how we talk about it in some of the higher level um, training courses that ICDL offers is sort of we, when, when clinicians um, become more comfortable and experienced in using the DIR model to look at kids and their developmental profiles, we sort of take a little bit of a step back and start to also look at the parent and caregiver and how we can incorporate and integrate them into the work. Right. And certainly it's different for everyone. Now, I had done a podcast with Dr. Kathy Platzman, who, who you also know, she runs the... Um, training at ICDL, which is the home of DIR and DIR floor time training. And um, Eunice is one of the trainers. Um, and in fact, Eunice taught me in my um, one of my courses for, for ICDL. Um, so she had said in this podcast we did, and for the listeners, if you wanted to refer back to that podcast, it's, um, it was the one called how a caregiver's regulation affects the child's regulation, I believe, was the title. And she said the first step would be, and you can let me know if this is the approach you take or um, maybe elaborate on what she said. She said, figure out what you can change and what you can't and embrace that. So someone might say, I'm in the boat that doesn't sleep, eat well, nor exercise. Woohoo! and kind of own it. <laughs> and uh, you'll recognize that as Kathy's personality, of course, <laughs> the way she said that. Um, so, I mean, is that really the first step is, you know, like you said, you want to see what's already working. And is that sort of what you meant by that? For sure. I mean, I think, I mean, I, uh, Kathy actually was one of my first facilitators in my DIR training as well. So it's definitely a circle. Um, so she's um, been, been at this and, and is, is somebody that I, I learn a lot from, continue to learn a lot from. But absolutely, I think that piece around, um, I mean, DIR is a respectful model when we're talking about the kids, but it's also respectful when we're talking about the parents and caregivers. 
So while there are things that we can sort of massage or we can stretch, there's also things about the parents um, that sort of we have to figure out how to work with as opposed to change. Because I think um, oftentimes when I'm working with the child and the parent, I'm thinking about sort of um, a common place where the two can meet. Right. And so I'm, as I'm thinking about the child's profile, I'm understanding the parent's style, their stress levels, their own regulation. I'm trying to find, you know, interactions, um, sort of things that they can connect on where it's mutually sort of enjoyable for both of them so that they can start to climb the developmental ladder or the child can. Right. OK. So I know that I've heard um, I can't remember if it was from a radio show or different clips that I've seen with Dr. Greenspan or different blogs or, or where it was where, you know, there would be, um, there might be um, a mother who is much more comfortable with the emotional aspect and a father who's not as comfortable with it, for instance. And that would be a standard stereotype. Um, that the father finds it more difficult to connect emotionally with the child, but the father might have other strengths. And I think Dr. Greenspan had walked through some examples, but is, um, so is that the type of thing you would notice, for example? Like, um, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think when two parents, um, sort of are both participating in the therapy and the work, um, inevitably they definitely bring different strengths and different preferences, right. In terms of how they interact with the child. And I think it's, important to really sort of understand that, be respectful of that, and also sort of figure out where sort of there may be, um, where there are some common ground. So um, when I'm thinking about this, I can think of an example of a family that we, um, that I've worked with before, where, you know, we, as with any other clinician, we're building a therapeutic rapport with the parent, we're getting to know them. And over time, we actually um, found out that, and for the purposes of this child, this child did or really benefited from being in the swing, you know, the sort of that getting that um, getting that vestibular movement was very helpful for the child. But what we noticed was that when um, the child was on the swing and the parent was interacting with them, um, the parent didn't look comfortable. And it was only through discussion that we realized that this particular parent was really sort of sensitive to motion. So. A little bit of motion sickness mm -hmm. so it really wasn't something that she obviously um, preferred but she like many other parents do she did it because her child enjoyed it and it was a good interaction but it wasn't you know when we were thinking about it as a team of clinicians we were thinking okay we need to figure out something else that these the parent and child can enjoy to do together without really challenging the parent to the extent that it was making her um, physically feel unwell Mm -hmm. um, and so, and that, if you can think about that really goes back to her regulation. And right, so right. there wasn't anything she could do really to really sort of throw herself in and enjoy herself if it really didn't feel good on a very visceral, on a physiological level. Yeah. And, and that reminds me of something else Dr. Platzman shared with us. Um, when I did that other podcast with her about this topic, she said that, if you're not um, regulated yourself, there's not much you can get done without that first capacity of being regulated. Absolutely. I mean, I know that Dr. Platzman also talked about um, co-regulation. Mm -hmm. And co-regulation is really dependent on both of the, you know, the parent and the child in this case is, is the dyad we're talking about. But it's really them supporting, you know, and, and obviously more so the adult supporting the child with their regulation. So if you think about it, if the adult is starting to get a little dysregulated, then their capacity to be able to support the child to stay regulated is really sort of limited, despite, you know, their greatest efforts. So it's not an issue. We don't think of it, or I don't think of it in terms of sort of um, not sort of trying, but it sort of, it goes beyond that when they're just, if they're overstressed, if something is sort of, they're just phys feeling physically unwell, just like we would do with the child, we have to, that's where we have to work on. Uh, mm -hmm. That's sort of what, what the work is of the day or of the treatment session. Right. And um, there are a couple different ways we can approach this. And we've sort of been approaching it from a clinician standpoint. So looking mm -hmm. at the family and looking at, at the dynamics of the family. But if we're also taking it 
to the next step. And that might be the first step that the family works with a clinician to figure out the dynamics and has that expert set of eyes, that experienced practitioner's eyes to see and help them identify those things, which may or may not be obvious to the family members themselves, the parents themselves. But um, I, I guess... Um, the next step then would be what about when the parents are taking this on themselves? So for instance, readers of my blog might be trying to start a DIR, um, doing a DIR type model with their own family and they may or may not have access to a clinician or one regularly. And mm -hmm. they're applying some of this and they're saying, well, how do I figure out what's what's my regulation? And, and Dr. Platzman had suggested that um, we do some reflection and think to ourselves, what are our own triggers for our own meltdowns? So um, she said, you might say to yourself, when I have a bad day, it's because I lack patience. Or when I have a meltdown, it's because someone asked me to do something that I can't do. Um, something like that. I used the example with Dr. Shanker in the last podcast that if we wake up late and miss our alarm, I get very stressed out because then I feel rushed and I know that I have to rush and get everybody out of the house and get my son to school and get to my appointment or whatever it is, and that dysregulates me. So um, first of all, I'd ask you, is that the first step to really sit down and try and reflect and take an inventory, um, each parent, of what dysregulates them? And then secondly, the much more important question that I would love to spend the rest of the time talking about is how do we figure that out and how do we regulate ourselves? Right. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, I, th I think that's a good approach to it. Um, and I think um, I agree with Dr. Platzman and yourself in thinking that sort of it is a, it, it, that self-awareness is a really sort of fundamental first step is sort of, do you, and for some parents there, they, you know, they came into the study, for example, um, at very different points in terms of that self-awareness, right? Some were very aware of sort of what was stressful for them, what they needed, um, and others sort of, you know, needed a little bit more support in order to get there. So I think that self-awareness, that sort of even knowing, and I, I, it's interesting that Dr. Platzman uses the word meltdowns, because I think as as adults, we certainly um, we certainly have our moments, but even sort of knowing um, the some of the the gradations, some of those, you know, can we do? Are we aware when we're starting to get frustrated or angry or too much? You know, um, what do we do? And I think that begins, you know, that that we can certainly start the discussion about what do we do about it? Because I think the first step is the awareness of: Do you even know? Do we know when we're getting? you know, when we're dysregulated, what does that look like in us? Because what it looks like in one person could be very different than what it looks like in another person. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you could delve into a deep uh, psychoanalytical discussion here. And I, I, I think I talked about this a little bit with Dr. Ira Glavinsky a couple of times, and he mentioned that a lot of times, um, you know, it really goes back to the way we were raised as children. And so, if it was a very um, open family who can express emotions freely and discuss things versus a family who had the stiff upper lip and, you know, no emotions were accepted, uh, emotional expressions were accepted. It was, you know, all positive and keep the negative and crying to yourself kind of thing. Then that really affects how we regulate ourselves. And, and then I imagine there's, such a variety of awareness on the part of the parents um, and then not only that but the marriage dynamics so is the couple comfortable with each other uh, pointing out to the other one oh you know your your tone is getting a little angry right now and is that person going to take that or are they going to snap at their spouse or whatever so I mean you could really delve into a, a deep psychoanalytical thing here but I assume that's not the scope that you had in your study so no, no, not at all. Not at all. I think, and I think that's very important to sort of articulate is that sort of that's cause that's, um, cause as a, as a, as an approach that is rooted in infant mental health and, and some of those, some of those pieces, I think, um, it's, you know, I mean, I can understand that for, um, for some parents going, 
uh, delving into that is important for their own um, for their own awareness, but that's certainly not the case for every family. Um, and as a as the mental health person that was working, um, as the mental health clinician who was working on the study, sort of there was um, I, I sort of I found it was important to really sort of draw a bit of a distinction between sort of we're going to um, we want to understand um, your regulation to the extent that it affects the interaction with your children, right? Or the child that was coming in for treatment. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I think that's important because should the parent want to or be interested in delving further into that, then I think there were, you know, there are, um, I, I would have referred them to mental health clinicians that could sort of focus on that. But because the focus of the study was the child with the diagnosis, and the parents sort of in the in a very parent coaching model um, sort of we were um, we wanted to kind of separate that out um, a little bit um, I think that you can you know in all the the parents that I've worked with we've delved with into it to the extent of how it impacted their interaction and certainly some parents wanted may have felt comfortable sharing more other parents sort of we would focus on the discussion with the child. And that sort of was, was helpful, hopefully, for them as well. It's not, I guess I, I want to make sure that to clarify that sort of we didn't have to necessarily delve into it in order to understand the parent's regulation. I didn't sort of, I guess it depends on how far back you want to go. Right, okay. And um, yeah, I mean, um, this is where we can sort of, bridge that gap between DIR and Dr. Shanker's self-reg because this is the part where he's talking about where he said we started working with educators and realized we need to work on their self-reg. So mm -hmm. this is the point where whether it's self-reg, whether you're in DIR, whether you do the floor time, um, as a parent, let's talk about some examples of how we can work on our own self-reg. So I know you know, just from looking through the Twitter chats that um, Self-Reg does, they have live Twitter chats uh, every so often, I believe it's on Tuesday evenings, where they have five questions and they talk about ways that they um, apply Self-Reg in their lives. And so some people might find yoga or meditation helpful. Others might find a walk in nature. Others mm -hmm. might enjoy a long bath. And that's just a general type of thing. So. I'd like to discuss that, but then also I would like to say, well, what about in the moment? So certainly, you know, we talk about in, in the community in general of parents who have children with challenges, it is important to take time to yourself and, you know, have, have that break that you need for yourself and doing those kinds of things can help with that. But what about in the moment? So let me give you an example. Eunice of what happened to um, what I witnessed yesterday. So sure. we are currently in Pennsylvania and went to an amusement park called Dutch Wonderland. And I was waiting while my husband and my son were on a very scary roller coaster that I would never go on in a million years. But my son, the little sensory seeker, loves these roller coasters because he's craving that vestibular input. <laughs> and I don't even know if it's just that or if he's a thrill seeker. But I'm waiting and I see a father coming down off of the roller coaster with two screaming girls. And the older girl who maybe was five or so is sitting in the back of the stroller crying and very upset. And then the father's literally shoving the screaming, squirming, kicking, um, I'd say two and a half, three-year-old girl into the front of the double stroller. And it's so loud. It's so stressful. You know, you can tell he's embarrassed because there's other people seeing these screaming girls. One's wailing and the other's screaming and hollering and he yells. Finally, he just loses it. Would you cut it out? Like he just screams it, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I'm getting all worked up here. I need a sip of water. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> excuse me. So I'm sort of smiling to myself because having taken a lot of Dr. Gordon Neufeld's classes, the developmental psychologist from Vancouver, he always talks about how really it's not cut it out. We always want to be adding in a tempering element to the 
um, outrage that our children might be feeling. So it, it's always about, parents are always saying, cut it out. But no, that emotion needs to come out. It needs a, a room for expression. And what we want to do is add the tempering element by co-regulating, as we would say, or whatever. But <laughs> in that moment, imagine what that father's going through. Because he's by himself. He's totally stressed out. These girls are freaking out. They're losing it. They are just done. And who knows why? Maybe they wanted to go on the roller coaster again. And he said, no, I don't know what it was. But mm -hmm. he lost his regulation. Well, you know? I mean, yeah. No, I mean, that's that certainly, it's probably not an uncommon situation um, in, in uh, sort of in our day-to-day -day observations. And I think sort of what you have there is sort of, kids or two of them in this particular example who are dysregulated um, they could be overexcited they could be upset they could be scared whatever it might be and then you also have a parent who's responding who's also and I think that's our as for, I would say that for most adults sort of that is our in some ways a lot of people's natural inclination right is when they're upset sort of our voice raises and sort of we get a little bit more tense now whether it was because of the reasons that you were speculating right that he's in public those sort of things or whether it was just because he was also not feeling it for whatever reason mm -hmm. so but what we used to talk about sort of when we when we think about regulation and sort of the kids getting dysregulated and how our natural inclination is to sort of raise our voices it actually sort of it's not it's not um really addressing the the need for co-regulation in that moment you know, so at York, we, we used to talk about counterbalancing, I think is the term that one of our occupational therapists used. And it's really sort of, it's that counterbalance that we're really seeking in co-regulation. So when the children or when a child is clearly dysregulated, it's almost in some ways fighting that urge to join them because we're also, it's also making us uncomfortable or we feel bad. It's sort of coming at it from the opposite end to sort of counterbalance that. So we want to... Um, acknowledge the emotion a little bit like you're talking about I'm not too familiar with Dr. Neufeld's work but we want to acknowledge the emotions right the frustration or whatever it might be but we wanted to do it in a way that counterbalances that um, whether it's the energy the volume the intensity so that we're hoping that we can help them the child co-regulate in that moment right so th this is the million dollar question how <laughs> because when you're triggered like that, now, Dr. Platzman addressed this a little bit in our podcast. She said, um, self-talk helps you co-regulate yourself in your mind. So she said, she says to herself, what would Stanley Greenspan say? And that his <laughs> ideas can co-regulate, um, can co-regulate you. And so that is certainly, um, one thing, but is there a way to coach parents? Because I brought this up with Dr. Shanker last week. You can have all of this theory and knowledge about DIR mm -hmm. and about self-reg, but in that moment, that is such a triggering, stressful moment that it's hard not to just yell, just be quiet, cut right. it out, or whatever. Right. So Absolutely. What, what is there a way that you've um, coached parents for those particular kind of stressful events because I can tell you I saw that with about 50 families yesterday <laughs> and I thought to myself oh okay it's not just my son with developmental challenges or autism uh this is happening with every family that has a toddler <laughs> and this no, will work <laughs> for sure for sure I, and I think it's you know, uh, I, I, I think that is a, a, a great million dollar question. And, and sort of just to, you know, uh, you know, Dr. Plasman, if he's talking about the, the self-talk and, you know, Stuart, Dr. Shanker talks about the theory. I agree with you sort of in that moment, it can be very difficult, very challenging to sort of access that theory that might be very logical and very um, in, intuitive in some ways. Um, I think what I've coached and talked to a lot of parents about in my in, in the work that I've done um, individually, but also in the work that we did together as a team at York, was really sort of taking a more preventative approach, right? Okay. So that meant that we not only understood when the child was dysregulated, but when is the child starting to get dysregulated? Because it really is, it's very challenging in the moment if there's sort of, if it's that sort of, you know, it's already happened. 
it's very hard to sort of put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak, right? For anybody, it doesn't matter if it's a trained clinician, a parent, you know, it's, it's in that moment, there's not, there aren't unfortunately a lot of options, but there are many more options if we can start talking about what are the triggers, what are some of the indicators that the child is getting dysregulated, because it's much easier, not only is it to sort of help the child to address it, but it's also much easier than for the parent to access some of those very intuitive strategies and to do the self-talk before it gets to that point. I'm really glad you reminded me of that because um, that reminded me that Dr. Shanker says, once you're in that moment, not only is the child in red brain, but the parent's going to be in red brain too. And that was the term he used for when you are simply in, uh, I believe he said in the limbic system. So you're just reacting and right. the blue brain goes offline. So that is, you don't even have access to your speech and to your um, higher rational thoughts <laughs> in that moment. You lose yeah. all of that. That's one of the that's one of the many things I learned from my speech language pathologist colleagues is that sort of access to language for everybody is really compromised when we're when we're dysregulated. So the child, you know, may be very verbal and may be able to understand, but if they're really dysregulated, the language and that comprehension may be the first, you know, it's it's not the same, right? Their ability to understand reason um, it is not the same because sort of we're dysregulated. And as, as Dr. Shanker says, sort of our, our options at that point are very, very limited. Um, yeah, I believe he said your option is take a deep breath, wait and take another deep breath because <laughs> yeah. when you're in it, there's not much you can do. Right. And, um, and, and yeah, we brought up that point as well in the podcast that because our children are verbal, uh, the ones those of us who have children that are very verbal expect our children to be verbal and stop screaming, use your words. And they actually can't, they actually can't in that moment. So adjusting our expectations as well as, um, Oh, go ahead. Well, no, I think it's, you know, I I think it's just to, just to sort of add to your point, um, sort of, you know, our, our, sort of adjusting our expectations, but also at the same time figuring out how do I communicate what it is I need to communicate with, with the child in this moment, right? And it's, that's sort of one of the beauties of DIR is sort of we understand that sort of the child has access to, um, their, their profile is a little bit different depending on where they're at, right? So if they're dysregulated, understanding and recognizing that, um, the child doesn't understand, and it's not a, I think the distinction between um, is, is not choosing not to understand, but really lacks the capacity to understand in that moment, right? It's a temporary thing. It's a momentary thing. It's because they're dysregulated, and I think that shifts a lot of our expectations as well when we recognize that it's a capacity issue and not a choice issue. Right. This is, I think that's, this speaks to a little bit of Dr. Shanker when he talks about misbehavior versus stress behavior. Um, And I think that distinction is very important. But the other thing is that's really important um, that we do as the adult is that we can still communicate the affect and communicate the emotion that the child is expressing. Right. So we can do that in a simple way. We don't necessarily have to do that with really complicated language. So I think that piece of acknowledging their emotions which is very different than necessarily giving in, which Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time talking to parents about the distinction between those two. We can acknowledge the frustration and the emotion, but we can still sort of, you know, we're still limit setting or or keeping them safe. So can you give us an example of what that looks like then? So you're not giving in to the child, but you are um, using affect, like give us an example of what that would look like. Um, let me think of a good example. I mean, one of the more probably more uh, common examples that we saw when we were at York was sometimes around uh, children that would be upset or that wanted to sort of open the door and run in the hallway um, or sort of just constantly going for the door we wanted to acknowledge what their idea was, right? So they may have, they may be getting really frustrated, but we still, but we could, you know, we could tell them, well, it's not time to go yet. We're here for another 15 minutes. 
that wasn't going to work in that instance if they were already frustrated, mm-hmm. right? So we would sort of acknowledge um, this was one of the things that as therapists we did quite often was we would go to the door and we would say, oh yeah, let's, let's try to open it so that they, under, they knew that we understood their idea or their intention. So we were acknowledging and then sort of our facial expressions would match that. Oh, oh no. Oh no. You know, so, and it didn't have to be really complicated. Well, we're going to stay here for 15 more minutes and we're not going to open the door. We can't open the door. It was just, we could say that using our facial expressions, our tone, our volume, all of that had to match so that we were supporting the co-regulation as opposed to, you know, raising our voices or saying, no, 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 we have to stay here. We have to stay here. Um, Because that didn't necessarily tell the child that we were understanding what their idea was. So we weren't, so the distinction between, we weren't actually opening the door and sort of flying out, but we were showing them what we did understand their idea and that we could empathize with them, that this is what they really, really wanted. And so we would, you know, we could express that and sort of join them in that and also to help just try to co-regulate it before it got really sort of, um, it became more intense. And oftentimes sort of that was, that was the challenge, right? If we, if we raised our voices, if we explained too much, it actually sort of, for a lot of kids, not all kids, it could actually escalate their dysregulation. Absolutely. Right? Yep. They, would, they might think that I've got to be louder, I've got to be more insistent, you know, um, as opposed to them going, okay, well, then maybe they do, this adult, maybe they do understand. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think that acknowledging and that understanding piece is really key. And that does go back to speak to a little bit of sort of the, the um, uh, sort of some of the markers of the dysregulation when it first happens, as opposed to waiting till it boils over, right? Um, for lack of a better analogy. I mean, for some kids, that could happen really, really quickly. So um, sort of it might be challenging, but for other kids, there are some very clear indicators of, of dysregulation earlier on that need to be addressed earlier on. And it's much easier to do that than to wait until sort of, um, they're really, really upset. Right. And that's exactly where I was going to go next too. is how Dr. Shanker then said, we want to teach parents and educators to really look for those cues Mm-hmm. And start to recognize um, right before this happened, this happened, and this was a cue to let me know. Um, right. So, I mean, I can just give a general example. Um, maybe we're trying to do something with our son, and he sort of says, No, no, I don't want to. And then we say, Oh, we have to do this. No, no, I don't want to. No. Okay, well, first this, then that. No, 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 I don't want to. Okay, first that. And then spitting, and then, you know, all the behavior comes, right? And then it's like, we don't spit, we don't do this. And then you're focusing on that, which he was just trying to say what he wanted to say, and we weren't listening, so he had to escalate it to get louder and louder. And, um, I mean, that's that's just one example. Um, I think a lot of other things that we've talked about in the blog many times scattered in different blog posts is about noticing that our child is getting agitated when we get into a place that maybe is too bright or has flickering lights or maybe it's loud maybe it's crowded um things like like that in terms of sensory overload we can start to see the signs so that's an example of cues Um, Hmm. i mean i also in my work, I also encourage sort of, um, sort of uh, the sort of uh, tackling it a little bit from both ends, right? So looking at some of the um, maybe stress behaviors or indicators that a child is starting to get dysregulated, but also at the same time, what I lean on parents a lot to to be able to do, which and they're quite able to do because of their knowledge and expertise about their child, is also talking about and thinking about sort of what helps regulate their child. Right. So some of the strengths, right, whether that's um, certain movements, uh, certain kinds of interactions, whatever it could be that also sort of because we want to sort of tackle it from both ends, not only know sort of, okay, he's you know, he's it's starting to become very difficult for him, but also sort of what might 
I be able to do right now that that could help? Right, some of those, right. and this is sort of where the strengths-based approach comes in, is sort of what's worked before. And for some kids, it might be music, um, certain songs, um, familiar sort of, you know, um, familiar things that really sort of can help at that moment, right? So the same strategies that could help if a child's just starting to become dysregulated may not be as effective if the child's sort of already dysregulated, right? So that's even, it speaks to the importance of really um, trying to uh, use a preventative approach when, when possible. Okay, yeah, that's great. And then let's turn it to the parents. So similarly, maybe we can recognize in ourselves when we're getting a little bit overly stressed and Absolutely. figure out what can calm us. So I don't know if you have a few examples of what has worked for families you've worked with. Um, I think it, so it, it really sort of, it, it, it really runs the gamut um, in terms of what works. Um, I think for, for some families that may be working with a clinician, you know, um, we, we had some parents that really benefited from, um, over time, we realized that sort of them being able to come in every week and give us a really brief update, us as the clinicians, a really brief update on their, on the child's week was actually really helpful for one particular parent, right? Mm -hmm. They were able to kind of give us a really quick update without trying to do that and play at the same time, right? So that was sort of the, the, the really quick check-in. Um, with the therapist, whether it was myself or any of my colleagues. So that could be really helpful. I think for um, in two-parent households, um, both parents knowing each other and knowing when sort of you might have to tag each other out in terms of if someone's been at home the whole day or the whole afternoon and the other parent gets home and you're able to sort of switch off or take a different task at home um, to do and trade off a bit, that might be really helpful. Um, so there aren't any, I wouldn't say there's necessarily tried and true strategies that work for everybody, but I think it's around sort of understanding your own regulatory style and patterns and sort of know when, you know what, it's becoming a lot for me. So, you know, I, and then obviously you have to fit that in what makes sense in that particular family, right? It's, it can be a difficult, it can be more challenging if there are other kids in the home or it's a single parent household. Um, so... Uh, but hopefully sort of that self-awareness piece is, is always important, but it's tricky in terms of how you figure out um, what might work for one particular family. Yeah, and I know that um, Dr. Neufeld always talks about this process as a dance. So mm -hmm. figuring out what works for your child is a dance. And similarly in floor time, and I, I think we alluded to it um, in my podcast with Dr. Shanker as well, it's really trial and error. It's figuring out, let's try this. It worked or it doesn't. Let's try this. And then right. what works for a while uh, suddenly might stop working in certain situations or as development happens in your child, then what used to work doesn't work anymore. And so it's right. always a dynamic process and it's always trial and error. For sure, for sure. I think, that's, I think that keeps our work interesting, but at the same time, I can certainly understand that at times that can be very frustrating, right? Something that's you know, worked uh, for the last two months isn't working anymore. But I think what we also try to encourage is sort of the idea around sort of um, not necessarily a specific activity working or not, or a strategy, but why it's working. So that's okay. definitely some of the work that we used to do with some of the families was really delve into a little bit deeper into sort of, okay, well, the music helps or a certain song helps. What do you think it's about that song that helps him in that moment? Right. So we could talk about that because it wasn't, you know, what we oftentimes found is it wasn't necessarily about the song. It might be about certain qualities of the song, right? Is it soft? Is it rhythmic? And then oftentimes uh, it would go back to sort of the parents, right? And that interaction and that sort of, you know, that piece of it that was really at the crux of it, right? So it, it mattered because it oftentimes mattered who was doing it, right? I was a therapist just, just going to say that. Right. 
that well, what, a what works with doing mama it, doesn't work with dada and what works with dada yeah. doesn't work with mama <laughs> exactly exactly and what works for mama and dada does not work with the therapist mm -hmm. right and so and so that i mean that keeps us all on our toes but it's really important to figure out sort of to think about is it the particular song or is it just the way that it's sung so does it matter what the words are Right. Can we start to sort of I think we always we're always trying to broaden out sort of what's supportive. So it's not sort of, you know, it's it's a this particular song. Right. But what is it about that? Is it about the familiarity about it, the rhythm, the key, whatever it might be? And yeah, it's absolutely finding out sort of what works for mama maybe in the mornings doesn't work for mama at night. Right. It's different. Right. I think that certainly adds to the challenge, but everybody, and I think that's what makes DIR really interesting. And, and at times it can be a little bit challenging is figuring all that out because each person in that child's life does bring something different. So it's not interchangeable as it, as it really shouldn't be because we're all very individual. Right. And, and, you know, you, you can just think about our, our own lives, like maybe what, music we like listening to driving to work in the morning is not at all what we like listening to after the whole day of work driving home after a stressful absolutely. day um, absolutely and, and i'm just giggling to myself in my head picturing you know a parent with this child say there's a child who has a particular stuffed animal or character that they hold on to like a security blanket and then all, you know the child's later distressed and the parents you know, shoving it to the kid. Here, here's your, here's your teddy. Here's your teddy. How come you're not calming down, kind of thing? And the kid throws it, doesn't want it. You know, it's like, um, yeah, teddy might work, and sometimes, but in this moment, it's not working, and right. and it can be frustrating for the parent because they just want so badly uh, to not see our children upset, yes. suffering, and distressed. Absolutely, right. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's that's really it's 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 very hard for parents, and I can. Um, I can empathize that sort of that desire to want to help. And, you know, so there have been times where I've, you know, when we've worked with parents where I've said sort of, it's just, it may not be anything in particular that they want. Maybe it's just you. Maybe it's just the parent. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing that the parent needs to do or say, but I think it's, you know, it's being there, right? As they always are. And sort of, you know, uh, I think one of my the facilitators or people that I've learned DIR from, it's it's sort of, you know, that's they're sticking out, sticking it out during that really uncomfortable time, mm -hmm. because there is nothing to fix, right? If the child's upset about something that there's literally nothing the parent can do, that I can only imagine is very frustrating and very difficult for the parent. But at the same time, sort of really encouraging them to just stay there with them. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, you know, if there's nothing that can be done. Such you, as Dutch Wonderland's closing now, and I'm sorry, you can't yeah. go on that roller coaster again. <laughs> right, right. Or it's, you know, it's raining. We can't go outside or we're right. done, you know, or somebody has to say goodbye. Yeah. And that's really hard. And, you know, um, you know, but, but at the same time, sort of, you know, that parent being there sort of speaks volumes. And maybe in the moment, it takes the child a while to, you know, to be, to, to, to be able to calm down. But sort of that's, if that's, even if that's the only thing that the parent does, that's a really important thing. It's a critical thing that the parent does. And, and another thing that I, you know, I've, this is said by many people, but certainly um, has been brought up by Dr. Neufeld a lot in the classes I've taken of his, um, that it's not just being there, but are you actually there or are you looking through your cell phone messages while you're sitting next to your child or are you thinking about other things? Um, so being really present and attuned to that child, we talk about attunement a lot in floor time. Sometimes um, that regulating piece is really knowing this person is totally focused on me right now. And I know I feel this when I'm working at my computer, trying to finish up my blog post before bedtime or something. And, and I'll say, oh, I'll be right there, sweetie. I'll be right there, sweetie. And, you know, my son will come and sit right next to me, and he's not moving until I'm ready. Like, he's waiting. He's like, come on, Mom. I'm waiting for you. <laughs> right. He wants me there. He wants my attention. Right. I mean, I think, I think to the extent possible, right? Um, I think um, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. I think parents are very busy, and they're oftentimes juggling a lot of different things. But certainly sort of being present um, and being available 
to interact with the, the with the child can be is extremely beneficial. Yeah, I like how Dr. Neufeld puts it. Um, it's like um, an attachment hunger. So just like you wouldn't um, not feed your child if they're hungry or not let them sleep if they're tired or not have them go to the bathroom when they have to go to the bathroom, uh, when they need your attachment, you want to fulfill that need as well um, by giving them that full focus. Right. Um, I mean, I think that's, yeah, I think, I think that's the thing, right? That's when you can and sort of if, for whatever reason, the really, you know, the parent isn't able to, um, I think that sort of goes back to your initial question or how our conversation started about the parent's self-regulation, right? Mm -hmm. And, and sort of, sort of whether they're aware of it, whether they're getting support to help them regulate, right? Because I think it's, and I'm sure Dr. Shanker uses this example of sort of the the oxygen mask on the airplanes mm -hmm. and how they always tell everybody to put their own on mm -hmm. before they put anybody else's on. Um, I think that to, to an extent that that's po that when it's possible, that's really important because we have to, you know, um, a parent who is regulated is going to be much more available um, for the child. Right. Yeah. So I yeah. think that's, you know, I think that, you know, it's, 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 it can, that can be sometimes very, very difficult depending on the situation. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I think we touched on so many important things today and I really want to thank you for taking the time to go through all of these examples with us. And yeah, there, it, it's not a recipe. It's not a, a cookie cutter solution of course uh, dir never is it's always individualized and it is a lot of trial and error but just having these points to think about will be really helpful and um, listeners can check out the blog post i will um, you know put down some of the important points we've talked about link to some of the past blogs that go into these topics in more depth and um, if anyone has any comments they can um, type them in at the bottom of the podcast and we will try and answer your questions. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrapped up today, Eunice? No, no, I think it was, thank you for having me and uh, giving me an opportunity to uh, talk a little bit more about sort of the work that we did at York. Yeah, no, it's great. And um, I think my biggest takeaways from our chat is not only the things that I brought to the table about uh, that Dr. Shanker raised, but what you said about how not only um, are we trying to be preventative, preventive with um, our approach by seeing, you know, what can we do before that? I think Dr. Shanker used a pressure cooker uh, metaphor before <laughs> you get to that point where it's building up and exploding. Um, I liked how you said um, we want to really broaden out what's supportive and think about, you know, this might be supportive, but why is it supportive? So that, that was a big takeaway for me. So I like that. And um, we'll highlight all of this in the blog post. So thank you again. Thank you for having me, Daria. And for the listeners, um, stay tuned until next time. Here's to affecting autism.